and welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. My name is John Cribs. I'm here as always with Mr. Christopher Funderburg. Hello, Chris. Hi, John. How are you doing this evening? Doing great. We have better a... or worse than me. I definitely better. Is that ever... I'm always doing better for sure. Um, I'm such a miserable list. It goes without saying. I'm hoping today, though, that you're feeling a little bit better because we've got a returning guest who we're both a big fan of. Yes. And we are joined by screenwriter Tom Vaughn. Would you like to say a little bit about him? I stepped on your comments right there, John. No problem. Yes, we have a screenwriter, filmmaker, and teacher, Mr. Tom Vaughn. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for taking time out of your October to join us. I always feel like I'm taking people's time in October more than any, only because my October is always so busy between sports and horror movies and things like that. And just, you know, having kids and getting ready for Halloween and this year even more so. So uh, just thank you, especially for taking time out of this month. Well, I mean, truth be told, if the Astros went into extra innings, we would have rescheduled. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, is that game over tonight? Are they headed to the, to the championship? up uh, two games to none over the okay. days. So they did cool. win today. I like to refer to them as America's team on Twitter. It's <laughs> total trolling, obviously. I think it is. I agree with you. I've seen your Twitter. I agree with you. Everything they've been accused of, every other fucking team. You tell me the Yankees weren't juiced to the gills for 15 yeah. years? Give me a break. I mean, I'm a little embarrassed, but there's certainly limits to it. <laughs> Uh, But anyway, Tom, we asked you here uh, for a specific purpose. Uh, You are a screenwriter. You teach screenwriting, uh, and you have done horror screenplays, including the film Winchester from 2018. So we asked you, could you give us a list of some of your favorite horror screenplays or some of the ones that you think are the best written horror screenplays? And the idea kind of came from a conversation Chris and I had about how horror films, even though they are much beloved by many people, don't often get talked about in terms of the writing behind it. And the screenplays themselves don't often get the kind of accolades that the directors or whatever. Yeah. It's so much a director's genre in some ways that, that the screenwriting gets overlooked. And I thought it would be an interesting, we thought it'd be an interesting thing to have a conversation that's looking more at the screenwriting craft behind it, which unquestionably gets overlooked. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's absolutely right as far as just being a director's medium. And I and I think, um, and it's always it's always strange to make those proclamations of like it's more of a director's genre than other genres. Yeah, <laughs> but but there there is some truth to the fact of of what you are trying to earn with the audience and what you're trying to evoke to the audience is so visceral and um, rely so much on the strengths of the medium mm-hmm. that it, it's always going to lend itself more to the, to the director's hand, a little bit to the writer's hand. Because I, when I made this list, I started going through it. You know, there's a lot of my favorite horror films that aren't on the list. Because yes. the director made that film rather than the script itself. Yeah, I think it's actually comparable to like... MGM era musicals or silent comedies in some ways where oh, yeah, that's a great comparison. Yeah, where it's it's sort of like the writers on those definitely aren't 
aren't the thing. You know, a lot of the silent comedies obviously didn't work with scripts, what we would think of a modern script being, where it's just collections of gags that they would write the day of and that sort of thing. Um, But I do think it's that same sort of essential cinema kind of form that those things have, that horror cinema has and the way it impacts you. Um, And I agree that like, you know, a lot of my very favorite um, horror films, you know, have, have, either the script is beside the point like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or they're actively bad. Like Suspiria is a shit bomb of a script. (laughs) Like that is not a good script (laughs) by any measure, but that's a phenomenal movie that I adore with all my heart, you know? And I think that that's, you know, you kind of get that too. Where like, am I going to sit here and tell you American in Paris is a good script? No, that's a ludicrous thought to have, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I think is probably like, the, the greatest example of this, which um, I, I know Christy and I have, have expressed our, uh, yeah. our very rare affection <laughs> for Texas. It was, it was so weird to bond over that. Nobody yeah. likes that movie. Yes. It's, <laughs> uh, but it is, the, the script is not terribly impressive. A different, if a different filmmaker at a different time makes that movie, it, it's which they did. <laughs> they did. Yeah, and I was I was actually my agent asked me to pitch for the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Did you really? have a pitch for it? No, I I went home and I was like, I don't know if that's a good idea. And I went home and I rewatched it, and there was just there was just that sense of that I don't know what I could possibly offer this. Oh, that's that's interesting, uh, because I was going to ask you, when we get into your screenplays, we should dive into the screenplays, because this touches on some questions I had with some of your picks, like directly, like as far as process with remakes and homages and maybe certain things like that. So should we just start digging into the films yeah, themselves? Sure. I think I'd like to do that, John. We got a, a, we have a 10 films to talk about. So I think that that hopefully we can spread in all directions from yeah. each Boy, of these. So I just want to point out too, we didn't give you any kind of a curricula for this at all. Tom, we didn't say pick your favorite slasher movie and pick your favorite right. haunted house movie. We just said pick as many scripts as you'd like to talk about. And, uh, and you yeah. send us this list of 10. So these are kind of all, all across the spectrum and the first one you chose was psycho sure yeah and i and i uh, you guys when you guys asked me i i because you you get into that immediate uh of god i got impressed with my selections I got to go really. I got to hit the deep cuts. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I got to have that vinyl collection that has the shit you've never heard of. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So I, I ended up, I had just like, well, I got to give myself some criteria. And I knew that as soon as I went to foreign languages that I would get lost. And then people, there's that sense of how can you mention this, but not that. And, and, and my, my education in foreign horror, uh, is so limited uh, that I saw so just straight English language. And, and then just thinking about what makes the script different than say the final product, or at least what is the influence the script has on the final product. Yeah. Um, and obviously all directors have a tremendous amount of influence on the script itself. So, uh, I'm just basically pretending the final copy of this script is what was shot 
And then what was that script looking like? Yeah. Uh, so as any kind of director will develop the script, Hitchcock obviously developed Psycho quite a bit and, you know, pushed what he wanted out of it forward, but it was still, the end result was this script. Uh, and I also just was thinking about what scripts do I go back when I write? When I write, like, what do I go back to? What are the stories, the movies I rewatch when I start hitting a genre? Uh, what were those influential movies? Um, and I watched Psycho again just this last week with my wife, and she hadn't seen it in 30 years. And, and I, I, I've seen it at least 10 times. Um, but it's fun. It's been fun to watch horror movies with her because she – she doesn't watch horror movies, and so yeah. it's such a different eye of how what her reaction is, and uh, and it also helps you feel tension so much more because you can feel the tension of someone next to you or <laughs> yeah. who's watching with you, and it, and it just kind of reminds you of like watching a, a film in the theater with a crowd, and what a difference that makes what an effect that has on you. It's, it's interesting that you say that about your wife not being a horror fan. My dad has a story of, he saw Psycho in 1960 when it came out, he was 10 years old. He lived on Lookout Mountain, Tennessee, and he would take the incline down to the foot of the mountain to where the movie theater was, and he would just go see whatever came out. And he saw there was a new Hitchcock, he knew like spy films, 39 Steps. Sure. I'll go see that, he's 10 years old, and he said he was, terrified he went out to the lobby and called his mom to come pick him up immediately right but he said he couldn't help but going and keeping peeking back in as she went to come get him you know yeah and i always think that's an amazing story that's the filmmaker's dream right that you scare them out of the theater and yeah. then they still come back yeah, right that's that's your dream is that they, they can't happen. resist coming back they to have it have to find out yeah and you scare <laughs> them out and they and they still can't get away from it you know so it's that's funny and he hates horror movies and he's always hated horror movies because of psycho from that but it's that it reminded me of that like horror movies for an audience that isn't necessarily attuned to liking whatever yeah and i i just also just we, we kind of take for granted uh, these stories that absolutely freaked out the original audiences and now yeah. they are so ingrained in our education like we, we kind of take them for granted but uh, you know the first half of Psycho obviously it's the most famous for killing off the main character you know um, it, it's so hard to pull that off well which is it's, interesting too because the book does not set up this whole screen with Marion Crane being the main character and then having this big twist in the middle. That's all Joseph Stefano. And he worked with Hitchcock very directly when they, as you said, they developed the film together. And he, his pitch to Hitchcock was, we were with Marion Crane up until the shower and then suddenly she's killed and anything goes, you know? Anything goes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and all the scene work until then is just pitch perfect. Just there's so much tension through every scene. Uh, and just the title psycho of how yeah. that affects, how that affects while you're watching this thing. And I, I've often wondered, like if you did not have the tur like the title psycho, uh, could you have gotten away with killing her off at the midpoint? Yeah. Because otherwise it's a fairly traditional but effective if the title had been the nervous embezzler or yeah, if it had just yeah. another hitchcock title if it had been spellbound or under capricorn yeah. you know 
Yeah, and the, just the, the scene work of her going to uh, the car lot and buying this car, and then this guy, the guy selling her the car, trying to figure out what's going on with her, and starting to figure out that something shady is going on. Yeah. And we never go back to the car lot. Like, we never, like, there's nothing, yeah. there's nothing to that scene other than the enjoyment of the scene, because we're going to kill off this, this main character. That's what uh, I find so uh, interesting about that script is that that there is a everybody's aware of the twist now, but there is this whatever it is forty minute movie that's not Psycho. What we think of Psycho. There's this forty minute movie about Marion Crane that's fucking great. Yeah. That movie is great too. It's not the Norman Bates and his mother movie. It's the Marion Crane rips off her boss movie, and that movie I is like more than Psycho in some ways, but that's incredible. He essentially has two movies that would be many filmmakers' best movie yeah. in one fucking movie. And and the way they end the first movie, not just the killing, but just, yeah, the money goes down the swamp too. Yeah. Like, you know, the money doesn't come back later on. There's no, it's not a clue that they find, but no. here's the money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's, he doesn't benefit from it. Yeah completely starts over with a new story of who killed Marion Crane. And then again, the scene work uh, of Arbogast, Arbogast coming in and talking to Norman Bates and, and just going beyond the, like, the wonderful, interesting acting going on, but just slowly of, of Norman Bates getting nervous, being very comfortable, then getting nervous, Arbogast figuring it out. Yeah. Like, and, and there's, even though I've seen the movie so many times, you still feel the tension in that scene. And That's something great I found out too about that scene recently. And I guess this isn't, doesn't have much to do with the screenplay itself, but um, the way that they worked it out as actors was uh, that Anthony Perkins told him, you cut me off and don't let me finish any sentences. And that's why that scene is so like, you know, tense because you have Norman Beach, you know, trying to get words out. And getting cut yeah. off before you know before he gets anything. So good. It's, it's great. It's so good. Yeah. Um, and and then one thing that I've noticed that I think there's probably only really one of these stories that I listed that the the script isn't constantly a step ahead of the audience. Um, yeah. But Psycho is always a step ahead. And and what. Like, I, like when I teach, I always talk about staying a step ahead of the audience. And it's easy to stay a step ahead of the audience if the audience is confused and doesn't know what's going on and you're going to surprise them. Like, killing Marion Crane, it's very easy to stay ahead of the audience. You know, yeah. with like, oh, yeah, we're going to kill the main character. Yeah. Just the guts to do it is impressive. Yeah. But staying ahead of the audience isn't, like, you could take any movie and then suddenly kill the main character at the midpoint and you're going to be ahead of the audience. Yeah, so, but to, to maintain that narrative drive is what's impressive about it, is and, you can kill the main character, but then what's the yes. next step? And then the audience always has a sense they, they know what's going on. Yeah. And you don't. And here you think he's covering it up for his mom. Right. And then yeah. I think that's the storyline. Well, he's covering up for his mom. And then you find out the mom died. And then it's, well, who's that person? And so now it's like, well, who's pretending to be his mom now? What's going on there? And then you finally realize at the end, it's, it's all the same person, which again, in 61, 
it had to be mind-boggling. And we're, we're, we're somewhat critical of the last scene of explaining everything, but that's the <laughs> modern audience. That was a question I had for you, is why do you think he included that last scene? Because I obviously, like a lot of modern audiences, I hate the scene, I think it's bad. I think it, the, the psych, pop psychology of the time was discredited even then. And I always felt like this is an unnecessary jump scare. This is Jason hopping out of the lake at the end. You know, it feels like a yeah. cheap way to end that do you agree with that or do you think he has a different relationship to it uh i this is my feeling about it that we would if they made that movie again and they didn't decide to do a, a shot for shot yeah. which, which i still find interesting like the, the shot for shot remake i like oh, it yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. i think that's a really interesting formal experiment it's, yeah it doesn't yeah. matter whether it's good or bad it's it's an experiment it's point. yeah yeah uh and the actors are good in it and uh, but if you were to to remake it without doing that you wouldn't require that final scene and you probably would not have required it for 25 years uh, but I think at the time, there, that sense of split personality, that sense like it wasn't a part of the culture. And I think yeah. Psycho put it in the culture. So a lot of Hitchcock defenders say it's a joke. Like they put that last part in to make fun of the movie, which if it's true is like, well, I I, I'd I like it less. That. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they, I don't think I buy that. I, and I could, I, God knows, I don't really know. Um, uh, I don't know if Hitchcock had said anything in any of his interviews explaining it or uh, in the new 4K, whether there's some, some film historian commentaries that will tell me about it. But well, I, if we I, go to Hitchcock Truffaut, we can find Truffaut expounding an incredibly ludicrous theory about it, Hitchcock resisting that theory, then getting bowled over by his praise and agreeing to it, which yeah. is all of Hitchcock <laughs> Truffaut. <laughs> I... You can get me to agree with anything with a love bomb. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's so much of Hitchcock Truffaut is Hitchcock being like, well, I don't think so. And him being, but it was so brilliant. You're so brilliant. And him being like, you know what? I think I was. You're I right. think you're exactly right. Who am I to argue? <laughs> I think the scene in the movie that's kind of the underrated magic trick is the scene of Norman and um, Marion having the meal together, the sandwiches together, uh, where her story intertwines with his where she even sees a connection between the two of them and she thinks I don't want to end up like this poor pathetic guy which yeah. is such an amazing thing of Stefano to put in there when in Block's book Norman is you know, this obese loser with you know uh, who's a, a drunk and alcoholic and is you know just a creep from head to toe to instead make it you know a scene of sympathy where she is kind of seeing and feeling emotions for this guy is kind of a brilliant because that makes it more easy for the transition to go from her into Norman when we don't realize yeah. maybe that he's the killer. Yeah. I mean, he is, uh, he feels like a victim. Like he feels like such a victim there. Um, and yeah. And just going back to the scene work, like that is, I, that's one of my favorite scenes uh, of the two of them in the sandwich. Even though like a part of me, it was like, I can't eat a sandwich from someone who I haven't seen them wash their hands. <laughs> I can't, like a tall, strange person makes me a sandwich. I'm like, I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> they do it in Psycho 2 again, where he makes a sandwich and like you watch him, he's like, he didn't wash his hands. How long has that bread been there? Like, you're, having a, you're having a bologna sandwich for dinner? Like, oh. Do you think um, 
that that's this when you watch psycho uh, again it's one of those movies where you every single scene you go oh this scene oh this scene over and over again right do you think that how important is it for a good screenplay to be a collection of strong scenes in that way? Do you think that's a necessary element or do you just think that's a good... It's everything. I mean, it's... um, What was the old Howard Hawks line of three great scenes, no bad ones? Yeah. Yeah, like what's a good movie? Three great scenes, no bad ones. And, you know, modern audiences are a little more demanding. So I think it's five great scenes, no bad ones. Yeah. Uh, And everyone remembers the great scenes part, but they forget the no bad ones part. Yeah. And and being able to like go through an entire script, to write an entire script with no bad ones. And here we are, Psycho, we start talking about, is that last scene a bad one? Yeah. Is that a bad one? No, it's not. Yes, it is. It's so hard. You're right. It really does feel unfair. If there's one scene that's bad, you're going to have somebody like me being like, why did they do that? Yes. Get rid of that scene. How many bad endings? And you're like, you feel the need to defend yourself for liking the movie. And then you go, not not the ending. I've always felt like if you have a killer ending and a killer opening, you can get away with almost anything in a movie. I don't think it becomes good, but I think you can get away with so much. And I tell you, there's a, like, that's another thing that I really noticed is like, certainly in the early, like the, there's not a lot of killer openings in these movies, particularly the older yeah. ones where like Psycho doesn't have a huge opening. Rosemary's Baby doesn't, Invasion of the Body Snatchers doesn't, Alien doesn't. Like they don't have these huge scenes that like have to grab the audience. Yeah, and most of them are slow burns, you know, which I think is really important for a horror film. Um, and but I think that's something that gets overlooked with slow burns is exactly what Tom Vaughn is talking about. A slow burn is not something in which nothing happens. It's these scenes that are not necessarily the big explosive scenes, but are still good scenes. You know, yeah. you mentioned Alien. Alien is a slow burn, but it's like Psycho in that it's a movie you watch and you're like, oh, that scene over and over at the beginning, even if it's sort of about the blue collar minutia, it's these very memorable scenes between yeah. everybody. The, the narrative momentum when there is not necessarily what you think anything going on. Yes. It can't just be, there's, you know, there's a sort of certain breed of like mumblecore horror film. That's a lot of just like, it's slow burn because it's a scene of somebody reading a book. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's like... <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, and look, I love art cinema. I will watch somebody read a book. I will fucking do it and I will enjoy it. But I would not confuse that with like a slow burn compelling Ooh, plot. So Tom, your next pick uh, is a film that I think is a really interesting pick for a lot of reasons. The main one being that it's a film that I think most people think of as a, one of the great directed horror films, right? One that is very much, you know, a success because of the uh, direction of Roman Polanski. It's is, of course, Rosemary's Baby. So what I kind of want to start out by asking you about this one is, uh, one thing I was reading in re- recently was that um, Polanski was very close to the book with his adaptation and that William Castle, the producer, had said, uh, well, it's because Roman had never adapted anything before. I think he was afraid to go off script. You know, I think he was afraid to actually change anything. Uh, so when it comes to adapting uh, a book, how how slavishly do you think a filmmaker needs to be, to, or a writer needs to be, to that source? Uh, okay. 
it just depends on the book, you know, and, and uh, certainly older books are more literary. You know, like today's books tend to read like, well, they want it to be adapted to a movie. It's really yeah. almost like you're watching a movie on screen. And I've never read the book Rosemary's Baby. So, but, uh, you know, story tends to be story. Structure tends to be structure. So uh, it's usually the problems that you have with adapting a book is that there's just so much scope. It, it is difficult to put into a smaller, you know, two to three hour format. And people are getting around that now with limited series. And now you can be much yeah. more faithful to the, to the book over, over a season or something like that. Uh, and then the other problem with books is, is, is if the, uh, the conflict is, is uh, internal that becomes a much more difficult process of how do you, how you visualize it. Um, there's a, certainly a moral question that we all, you know, for the most part, once the checks start flying, you dismiss, which is like, what is the original author's intent? <laughs> um, and as soon as you feel like, uh, you know, the bread on your table is not reliant on the author's intent, you tend not to care. But if the author is, you know, involved in the project, say, say you're writing with Stephen King and he used to, he got, he was uninvolved for a while. And now from my understanding, he gets more involved and filmmakers tend to want to please him now because he is in his contracts to be, to be. I have a very funny off the record story about a filmmaker who was big enough to resist him having an awful experience working with him oh, I, I, <laughs> because he was minutely involved in this filmmaker did not want it. Yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine well, what a nightmare that would be. Uh, and nothing against Stephen King, but yeah. if someone's got power and they are the original authors and feel ownership over your work and you're trying to make this movie, what a terrible experience that would be. Yeah, especially I would imagine too with somebody, as much as I uh, have learned to uh, admire Stephen King, he's a writer with a lot of bad stuff in his books. If you just do what Stephen King wants to do, you end up with, uh, what is it called, Dreamcatcher? You know what I mean? You end up with- With a mind library. With a mind library and a mentally handicapped space alien who's magic. You know what I mean? You, You just, you've got to- without diminishing what Stephen King is. Yeah. He is great at a lot of things, but he's also, there's also a category that he is not in. You know what I mean? And I think most people would agree, Stanley Kubrick is one thing, Stephen King is another. If Stephen King hates The Shining notoriously, like, of course, Stanley Kubrick doesn't get along with him. The conflict is obvious between their artistic perspectives without diminishing either one in any way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and so, but there are some books that just lend themselves very well. Um, uh, I, I, I did one TV movie adaptation and... Um, of, what, of which book? Uh, the book was, oh gosh, it's been 20 years, but the book was after, uh, the name of the uranium. It was like U582 or something like that. And I should know, and I'm embarrassed that I don't. Um, I sprung it on you. Yeah. It's gotcha journalism at its worst. I got to do research on my own career. 
Uh, so, uh, and yeah, it was actually an interesting movie and it was about some kids who stole uranium to prove how easy it is to build a nuclear bomb and then threatened, you know, people with it to, and then, uh, it was in post-production when 9-11 hit. And oh my God. NBC was like, there's no, there's no way where I think it aired once, like two years later. Like, I didn't even know it was airing. Like, one eye was flipping through the channels. And I was like, that's my movie. It's <laughs> <laughs> my film. Um, wow. And, and then I did another one that never got made. But that was like, man, I really, I really changed things up. And really, I folk, there was, it was a, his, a history of the modeling industry, just a nonfiction history. And I took yeah. essentially one chapter of 10 years and adapted that. You know, and, and then that, so 80% of the book was just completely ignored. Um, so it, 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 everything depends. Um, I had no idea how loyal Rosemary's Baby was. To me, that makes sense to me because it's so, um, uh, it, it's so sharp. It's so well absorbed, observed. It, the tension is so clear, even though you don't know what you're even tense about. Yeah. Oh, and, and that's a credit to the script and obviously to, you know, the, the director. Um, uh, but uh, again, always staying one step ahead of the audience that thinks they know what's going on. And that's such a crucial thing with audience going, oh my God, they're Satanists or they're, they're cults and they want to sacrifice the baby. And you're yeah. so cocky about it and you think you know what this is and you go through that journey of learning, oh my God, this person's involved and this person's involved. Um, I don't think that you could understate just how influential this has been to horror movies in general, especially staying with Roseberry through her perspective through the entire movie. Uh, something that so many horror films do these days where they're just centralized around this character so that the things that are building up in the source of the tension is that we know what she knows and that's it. Yeah. 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 And, and the people close to you and the paranoia of it. Um, uh, the, the, the guy who's helping you suddenly gets killed and like, like, yeah. That is such a standard now. Like that is such a standard now. Like oh, I'm going to help you, Rosemary. Yeah, <laughs> leads up to Joe Morton and the astronaut's wife. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like you can't do that movie without that anymore. Yeah, I you know I had studio put it in. <laughs> I had a kind of maybe process minutia related question, which is that screenwriting is sort of an act of faith on the part of the screenwriter a lot of the time, right? When I think of this movie, you can write, she gets a haircut that looks great, but everyone tells her is awful, right? And you've got to rely on the director to, to pull them off, to, ho to pull it off, to hope they can pull it off of like, the audience knows it looks good, but it's also believably being received as awful. How do you handle stuff like that in a script? How does a script handle it or do you just have to let it go and say this haircut looks great but everyone's telling her it looks bad and just hope it gets received that way because it's got to be a haircut that's bold enough to uh, uh, engender a real response but not ludicrous enough to actually deserve those comments you know 
Yeah, I, I mean, as far as the script, it's actually really easy. Where you would you would just <laughs> tell the audience how they feel about it. Yeah, like she walks with a haircut. She looks phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> and energetic, and you just flat out tell the reader this is how you feel about a haircut. And yeah. then, and then when the like the husband's like, "What the hell are you doing? What'd you do?" What'd yeah, you, uh, you would focus on her reaction to it, of like how you know, depressed she is and how, uh, what a disappointment it is. So it is, and then, and now you give that job to the director. Yeah. So now, now the director's like, well, shit, I got to pick a fucking haircut that, that the audience is going to kind of like, but is different and jarring enough for, for everyone around. I got a motor Videl Sassoon right to set to get this haircut right now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he nailed it. I think we can all agree <laughs> that. Yeah. Um, it's to me, it's such a great script about undermining your sense of self that all of the stuff with, with the haircut is amazing and tying that to the process of motherhood as like the great looming thing in a woman's life that undermines her sense of self where you're sort of reduced to the role of wife and mother, or that's your fear that you'll be reduced to it, you know? And I actually think that's sort of like the really grotesque twist of the ending is, is that she is in love with her child, that she doesn't like recoil in her, that she embraces this role. She's sort of been uh, bracing for the worst, you know, and it's worse than the worst, but then she still finds herself uh, embracing this role, embracing her fears is one of the things that's uh, sort of most, um, I think timelessly, or certainly has aged very well, that fear of parenting and being a parent that I know people of my generation feel, especially women, of how this is going to compress and compact their lives in a negative way. Just how important all of these endings are, you know? Yeah. All of these endings and um, keep it, that, that sense of surprise of what she chooses and yet it's perfect yet it's it's completely emotionally truthful like it surprises us but we believe it 100 percent and and leaves the movie with a mood to the like the audience leaving the leaving the theater with a mood in their gut yeah um, i think horror does so it, it exceptionally well yes like no other genre. One more sort of uh, maybe jokey question. Uh, do you tell your students not to write dream sequences, which is the best advice I feel like a screenwriter can be given? And how do you reconcile that obviously correct advice with the great dream sequence in Rosemary's Baby? <laughs> well, yeah, and here's, yeah, and it's like voiceovers, you know, of like don't do voiceovers, but really what you mean like anything, don't, don't do them poorly. Yeah. And you're not good enough right now that you are definitely going to do them poorly. So just don't do that. Yeah. That's another thing though. I think though falls back on the director in a big way. I mean, I think the dream sequence from the conversation, for example, comes off as cheesy and out of place because it was badly directed and conceived visually, you know? Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. But that's a case make of it short. You know, if you ever had a dream or a flashback, make it short. Yeah. I mean, and, and it begins, I, get, I, get, I guess you're right. I can't envision the badly directed version of the Rosemary's Baby dream sequence, which is so reliant on mood. But it's also not... Um, it's also not superfluous in the way many dream sequences are where it sort of feels like time filler or, you know, kind of uh, 
recontextualizing the plot. It's, it's almost like used as expository devices, dream sequences yeah. a lot of the time. And instead, this is a narrative moment, the dream sequence in this. Oh my God, it was real. Yeah, that it's that it's sublimated uh, activity. Jeez, that's such a like such a great. No, this isn't a dream. This is real. Uh, um, I don't want to rush through anything, but I also don't don't want the the episode to be too long. Do you mind if we move on to that? And I got to say, I love the Rosemary's Baby choice. Uh, I love that movie and i um i'm a huge fan of polanski as a director less so as a rapist and (laughs) i um love that that movie i never would have thought of the script as being great until you brought it up and then i realized oh yes because he's also a great screenwriter knife in the water is one of the best screenplays period i've ever read and gone through if you want like a little you know sort of clinic and roadmap for how to write a screenplay knife in the water is perfect for that uh, only with the advice of remove the symbolism but other than that it's 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 every, really great every single um, one of these great scripts was wonderfully directed yes yes but i really think this your selection of rosemary's maybe maybe go oh he's right that is that is a phenomenally good script too uh, it's not just the shot where she's framed around in the doorway where the audience leans to look around the doorway. That's not all that's going on. He's not working magic from a sort of bad script. But I always wonder though, too, if when he moved that camera, you know, uh, if he went up and and told the the cinematographer, move the camera so we can only partially see her at the door, if he had that in mind because he wrote the script, because when he was visualizing it as it was coming down, he thought, this is how this is going to be framed, you know? Well, that's the Lim Dobbs thing on the Limey commentary track where yeah. Lim Dobbs is complaining to Steven Soderbergh. It gets this very contentious commentary track. And Lim Dobbs is like, so everybody sees this movie. The credits all compliment your directing here because the camera stays outside the building when he goes in and shoots the guy. It's in the fucking script that says, we stay outside the building while he goes in and shoots the fucking guy. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I mean, my if you read my scripts, it's... They're, I mean, it's all directorial choices. And it's not, oh, like you, the, the trick, of course, when you write a screenplay is don't let the reader know that you're making these directorial choices. Yeah. We'll say, like, we stay outside from a distance, we see him enter the building. Uh, you know, we would necessarily say we see, but you, yeah. you will say, you know, from a distance across the lake, he steps into the building. Are you, wow. conscious, yeah, are you conscious of having to trick the director a little bit to make it think it was his idea? Oh God! I try. <laughs> I, I I've had plenty of directors. I should play, but I've had some directors where I was like, I I wrote it as a fucking shot list. How did you screw up that scene? Yeah, <laughs> screw up that tension. Like, well, yeah. I've I've met some directors, so I can imagine exactly how they fucked up that scene. Um, your next selection is uh, is another film I'm a really huge fan of, which is the 1979 version of Invasion of Body Snatchers, Philip Kaufman's Invasion yes. of the Body Snatchers. Um, this is obviously, it's interesting because it's a remake. It's not an original idea. Uh, what do you think of one of the my main reactions to this film, which when I initially saw it, I didn't get it. I saw it when I was too young and I loved the Don Siegel one, obviously a lot. I love the original, a huge, huge amount. 
what do you think of the film's switch from the suburban every town setting to the supposedly more freewheeling and individualistic San Francisco in the 70s, right? Especially in terms of its themes about conformity and mind control. Like, what do you think of that? That's the big switch of it, essentially. That's what makes it the different movie than the uh, original. Yeah, it is the primary difference. I, I, I like one because it's, it, you know, it's much more of a product of its time. Yeah. Uh, it's much more a product of its time. Of, uh, I also like it because like, there was another one called Body Snatchers and that was the military. Yeah. And that seems to be of all the remakes of like, what world are you sitting? It's like a Shakespeare play. Yeah. It's Shakespeare, but in Vegas, gangster. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the big switch. It's like, what world are you putting in? I, re- I once saw this very uh, impressive uh, uh, production of Shakespeare in which it was set and produced in the time it was written. It's very bold choice. <laughs> that is a daring, daring I I didn't get this aspect of it the first time I saw it, and I hadn't seen the Seagull version. And, yeah. Uh, but having been a big fan of self-help over the last 20 years and <laughs> improvement, and, and I've always thought that this was one thing the Body Snatcher films has always kind of missed, which is the one person who hasn't switched over where it does sound attractive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're like, this That's is interesting. No worries in this world. There's no, there's no qualms. There's no animosity. We don't hate you. There's no need for hate. And then someone just going, you know, that doesn't sound all that fucking bad. Man. <laughs> uh, and they lose their humanity. It's always the person who switched over who goes, no, it was a great choice. It was oh, yeah. <laughs> That's always my reaction to the Matrix is, tell me again why I don't want to live in the fucking Matrix. Will yeah. somebody just explain this to me quickly? What, why I don't want to be in there? You're a sounds like Sounds like the robots are right here, man. I'm yeah. a big fan of uh, W.D. Richter, obviously, of because of Big Trouble in Little China and uh, Stealth. But uh, you know, I think he's also said, Buckaroo Banzai. Be fair. Yeah, I, um, I I love his take on it. And I love reading uh, interviews where he talks about how, like, in '76, Legionnaires' disease was something that was just uh, that was the new panic in in uh, America, and how what was coming out of the air conditioning units was something that people now had to be afraid of, and how that sort of just generated this paranoia of environment and i love the switch to the city specifically because i think in the original miles the kevin uh, mccarthy character is aware that he stands out from everybody that he's aware he doesn't want to conform and i think in a small town where you think everyone conforms people are more conscious of not wanting to do it whereas we go into a city and i feel like people conform without even knowing it's happening and that yeah. gives this movie like a little bit of an extra thing of like the psychology of it kind of changes in a really interesting way. Yeah, it, it's what I, the, this is probably like one of the few films here that never really gets ahead of the audience. Like it is always pretty much, yeah, it's exactly what you think it is. You know, like there's never like that big twist of like, nope, it's something else. Like it, <laughs> it is exactly what you think it is every step of the way. And you're really watching these characters kind of, uh, uh, figure it out and what still hits me to this day is the relationships and how well they um 
establish these relationships and how much these two people care about each other. And she's married to the wrong guy and he's in love with her and she's kind of in love with him too, but she knows like she married the wrong guy. Uh, it, I, I find that relationship uh, and then there are two friends and Jeff Goldblum who, I don't, how the hell old is Jeff Goldblum? Cause he, he's a full grown adult in this movie. Yeah. Full-grown adult now, <laughs> old man yet. Um, but that to me is along with the paranoia, the obvious sense of like the whole world is out to get you, and you are alone and separate. Uh, uh, beyond all of that stuff, which which makes like all the body snatcher films work, I think to a certain extent, it is the heartbreak of these relationships. Yeah, and all the way up until that final moment where she had this stupid hope that he was able to fight off, which doesn't make a lot of sense, uh, but it's Veronica Cartwright. So I'll watch her scream, you know, whenever I can. Yeah. Uh, but that final heartbreak of seeing people you love, not just die, but just become somebody else. And I, uh, I, I still remember there's that scene where they're injecting him and he's telling his friends, you're killing me. You're killing me. Yeah. And like the death of the humanity, the death of the individual just thematically still kills me. Because like he's going to be, the body's going to be fine, the flesh is going to be fine, but everything that makes you you is going to be gone. Yeah. Um, And like wanting to hold on to that, I don't know, it just breaks my heart and it creeps me out. Yeah. Uh, and I think Twitter is like a big example of just like the piling on and, and uh, like a lot of these cultural revolutions that we've seen throughout time of you will adapt or we're going to kill you. Yeah. We will line you up against the wall. You will adapt or we'll line you up against the wall. Yeah. Become this or we're going to point the finger and go, Wah! at you you know and it's really and there's not even any thought you don't feel like there's a thought behind that noise it just feels like oh no that finger's pointing at me now there's this horrible noise coming out and there's no rational way to counter any of this i've just been identified as the outsider who has failed to assimilate in some fundamental way and it is fucking curtains for me and the slow realization of that uh, the whole second half of the movie is one night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the tension of that night of starting to figure out, like, the scripts, like, like the script, or, like, when they're pulling on the, in, on the telephone. And, and we have seen this so many times before, but this is the first time that I remember in a horror movie where the person on the other line already knows who you are. Yeah. And, and how terrifying that is. And you are mm-hmm. up against the entire world. Yeah. It's funny that, because when I saw this on your list, my reaction as like a very big Philip Kaufman fan was, oh, I guess that is a horror movie. You know, this is of all the things on your list. What I think makes this script exceptional is exactly what you're talking about. It's focused so much on the relationships and the psychology that this is not a scare generating machine, you know, and this is not even like a revulsion and transgression generating machine, which I think a lot of great horror films are as well, where they make you reconsider like moral structures through like just the sheer weight of the, the terror and grossness of it, you know, kind of thing. I think that this is like a very 
serious, intelligent, mature, dramatic piece that happens to have, you know, soul-sucking space aliens and, you know? Yeah, and again, there's no, no real twist. It just gets bigger and more diabolical. It's, you sink more down more into it. Helpless. More and more helpless. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a quicksand movie. Yeah. I agree 100%. Um, moving on to the, the next of your selections is obviously, you know, could you have picked not masterpieces straight through? Can you pick anything <laughs> other than the greatest films ever made? We're talking about Ridley Scott's Alien, uh, which is a phenomenal film. I suppose I should be mentioning these by the screenwriters instead of the, uh, instead of the directors. John, who are the screenwriters on Alien? So the sole credited screenwriter is Dan O'Bannon, although he developed the story with uh, Ronald Shusett, and uh, there were subsequent rewrites by David Giller and Walter Hill. And they were accused of plagiarism by David Cronenberg, who, who thinks this movie really stole quite a bit from, uh, from Shivers, which, you know, as I think is, is more charming than factual. Yeah. Um, I have to say I've never seen Shivers. It's early Cronenberg. It's so it's it's worth seeing, but it's not it's not going to blow you out of the back of the theater. Not ref, not super refined the way a lot of his later movies are. Yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of a mess, but we're seeing for sure. Worth seeing for sure. Definitely worth seeing. I'll stick with the old Cronenberg. <laughs> um, this movie is a sci-fi film that is actually more of a horror film, right? When writing, do you feel? Um, pressure either from yourself or your financiers to to clarify which genre film belongs to at the outset or can it ever be an impressionistic process are you allowed to find the genre for a film or is it you got to come out of the gate and know where what territory you're in normally normally you're going to come out of the gate knowing exactly what it is that like but there's nothing wrong with the heart like a monster movie in space you know like yeah like, oh, I think that I think there's zero percent wrong with this movie. I yeah, think this movie yeah, is literally okay. flawless. And unfortunately, these days, I'm assuming that the pitch is usually, it's like Alien. <laughs> but it is curious of like, are like certain things can't like do certain things mix and like an Alien that's a monster movie in sci-fi is really like a natural fit. You know, I, yeah. We've seen aliens. We understand extraterrestrial aliens. This one's a bad guy. But to do a ghost story where the the other one is sci-fi is really difficult. You know, yeah. the story in space is really, really tough. Yeah, and I think ghost point, stories in general are really hard to pull off. I think I, ghost stories are a lot, a lot more whiffs than successes. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. And up to this point, the monster in movies was always you know, uh, an ancient creature thawed from the ice or came from the sea or it's a tiny animal made big or whatever. I think what's really amazing about Alien is the mythology of the xenomorph and how you really see the whole process of biology from yeah. the beginning to what it becomes. And that is the horror there is seeing, you know, how this thing procreates and then functions. Yeah, and that's like some like some of the writing and just the choices made of this world building and this creature and the evolution of it and just like so many little choices of like the chest burster, the acid for blood. Obviously, the design is you know phenomenal, not but still, uh, I do have a question for you guys. Uh, xenomorph. 
is that the name of the alien creature or is it a term for any alien creature in this universe? Oh, I've always taken it to be the generic term for an alien, one of these creatures, one and not specifically this one in this movie. No, he means does it, is it any, if they had found uh, a xenomorph that's oh, the thing for in the pods, alien. or, and then they also found a xenomorph that looks like, you know, rocket raccoon. Are those both xenomorphs? Because that's oh, what that word would theoretically mean. Yeah, in yeah. Like, so I'm gonna, we're going to stick with canon here, which is alien and aliens. Yeah. Um, but in aliens, they go bug hunt. It's another bug hunt. Yeah. So I'm assuming this isn't the first alien creature they found. Otherwise, I don't know what the term bug hunt means. Yeah. But when they refer to the xenomorph, because xenomorph is, is a fairly generic Latin, you know, I would think of just like an alien form, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. I think it literally means unfamiliar form, doesn't it? Isn't that what xeno means? Uh, now I'm misremembering my Latin. Yes, and I've taken, I have no memory of Latin, so I will. Uh, I will. <laughs> well, when it comes to xenomorphs, I'm definitely a xenophobe for sure. Yeah, that's the only I know. Is- you are. Uh, what would be that? I was. If I was quick enough on my feet, I would have been able to say that they are xeno, uh, and then the suffix for words for you. They're xeno words, John. Anyway. <laughs> Um, so I don't know. I've always had that question. I wish I could. I wish I could get an answer from someone who felt more confident about it. Are the predators xenomorphs as well? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so again, going with just a slow burn, the characterizations, um, the the relationships. Even though some of the relationships were you know left on the cutting room floor, they're still like Cindy Pollock would talk about. Like you've always got right. Even after you cut stuff, the residue is there. Yeah whether it's in a script or a movie, the residue is always still there. Um, and then one, I, one of the things that I really love about Alien is uh, not knowing who the final girl is. Of, like, you yeah. thought, when you watch the first hour of this movie, it doesn't give you a whole lot of hints that Ripley's going to be the last one. And so really anyone's up for grabs. She initially almost comes off like the bad guy because she's the one who won't break quarantine to let, uh, let them bring John Hurt back into the ship. Yeah, I'm not letting you in. And yeah. obviously, as we know, totally right. You know, not, letting me, not letting you in. Um, uh, and then the creature, the design of that, of just kind of being picked off one by one, of them learning it's not just a little creature, but now it's gotten much bigger. And then the twist with Ash... Um, and the ending is not a big twist, but it is still an emotional ending of Last Survivor, you know. Um, uh, it's just such an effective, the tension, the scares, and obviously that's all accredited to Scott just as much as anybody else, but, um, for... Well, you talk about a script staying one step ahead of the audience. This is, this is, I defy you to find the person who was not, that this movie was not ahead of at every single turn. There's nothing you can predict in this movie. Every single thing that happens is uh, a holy shit moment, you know? It's so good that way. And again, some of these movies that we have seen so many times, we, we forget what it's like the first time we saw it. We forget how effective when we saw the creature had grown yeah become massive yeah and and 
how formidable it looked. And then uh, how jarring it is for Tom Skerritt, for Dallas. Just when it jumps onto their face out of the pod. That's a like, you never expect in a million years that's what's going to happen when they poke around the pot. Yeah. You and know? Back. And then just the device of the motion of like knowing like, like, oh, it's coming. It's moving. It's right there, Dallas. Get out of there. And then, and then Veronica Cartwright going, just get out of there, Dallas. Get out of there. <laughs> like it's so, like the, all the devices to it are so effective and just making choices of just like seven people just doing their jobs just trying to get back home and and their cannon fodder for these damn corporations yeah Yeah. the fact that they're all a bunch of modern mentality blue collar workers i think really grounds you into this world right away it's funny tom you'd mentioned uh the original screenplays as opposed to the finished film uh, O'Bannon's script is one that gets praised a lot. I don't know if you've heard uh, Andrew Stanton's quote about it. Oh. Andrew Stanton, when he was writing his script for Wall, he said, um, O'Bannon's description, description paragraphs were not your typical paragraphs. They were actually small phrases that were all left justified, almost like a haiku. And they created this rhythm of just being in the moment of quiet and visual. And you found yourself reading the descriptions much more than you normally do in a script because of that form. Instead of just skipping to the dialogue, it really kind of paced you as a reader and gave you a much more visceral uh, feel of what it was like to watch that movie. Have you read the original script? Did you, did you kind of get that feeling from it? Does it seem... Walter Hill experimented a lot with, with that same format. So I'm Interesting. Of like... Who's who's actual? Because uh, uh, oh, Walter Hill. If you read a Walter Hill script, yeah, it, it is a very different format than than anything else, and it's very staccato, very short sentences. Um, it's single spaced, uh, like uh, from paragraph to paragraph, which most scripts. You know, yeah, I actually just read his script for. Um... Hickey and Boggs for something we're working on. And I was surprised. It's like they made this movie before he was Walter Hill, you know? And it, cause it's so, it's, it's punchy. It's not quite that extreme where it's single phrases, but it's definitely like he's really um, making the, the, the words in the descriptions like matter to creating tone in a way that you always get the advice like, don't be poetic don't be flowery and he's not flowery and he's not poetic in that way he's poetic like a haiku it's more like rhythmic it's more like drumming or something you know i would compare it to but i was surprised by how like ja, 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 it yeah, is. I, I don't have enough confidence in my career and i'm pretty aggressive in my writing and i don't have enough confidence to to pull that off it's interesting to think it might be attributed to Hill. I always kind of thought that his big contribution along with uh, Giller was to include Ash, the, the android's character, and then to change Ripley to a female lead. Oh, good for him. Yeah, it's, uh, I, and it is a different movie if Ripley's. I didn't know that. Rip, like, if you make Ripley a male, it's a different Oh, yeah, it's a very 100%. different movie. It's yeah. a very different movie. And it also, it's interesting because it feels radical while simultaneously like locating it within final girl stereotypes and cliches, you know? So it's one of those things where it's a big decision that also resets it 
more within the horror genre in some ways, which I think is one of the things I like about it. That sounded like a criticism somehow when I mean that's what makes it good, actually. Any other thoughts on Alien, uh, Tom, before we move on to your next pick? Uh, uh, no, I have a feeling anyone who listened to this podcast has watched Alien 34 times. <laughs> that's a safe that's a safe guess for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll get one that they've certainly never seen the sixth sense. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to your next. This is your first left field choice. And it's one that I, I like. It is The Blob from 1988, which was written by Frank Darabout and Chuck Russell, directed by Chuck Russell. This was my, my question that came up a little before earlier uh, that I wanted to move on, which is how do you handle a remake? Like, how do you justify a remake? What is the artistic process? If you're given the assignment, um, remake the blob do you think it's dangerous to set out to improve it um which i think this script actually does i think this is a much better script than the original blob or do you need to approach it with fidelity Uh, or is actual like is fidelity and all counterproductive you know great question and again i hate to keep saying it but well it depends on the project (laughs) (laughs) it's like the blob i mean it's, I love the, the original blog and yes. I remember seeing it as a kid and what it meant to me because my parent that was a parent that was a story my parents had watched in the theaters and but it's trivial fun you know like it's yeah. not like it's not an intimidating remake it's yeah. it's not oh my god people are going to judge us so unfavorably how do we reinvent like, the blob for the 80s <laughs> yeah. but you do but there is a level on which if you don't um nail that sort of like uh low rent cheese ball fun what do you replace it with you know what i mean there is well, a level yeah, on I which you do have to live up to the memory of it in some way you, or be I, something else there there is that question of why are you remaking it you know yeah. like what makes this thing fun like yeah and this is fun because of this and for me the blob is ultimately a fun monster movie about kids who find a threat that the parents don't take seriously like that's yeah. that's what it's always going to be and then so it's like well how effective can you be within that framework it's um, and that's what I like. What I love about this of just keeping a step ahead of the audience again, and uh, it kind of assumes and hopes you've seen the original Blob, but doesn't count on it in the slightest. You know, like <laughs> it, it. It. I think you enjoy it more if you've seen the original Blob because the the hip fakes are more effective because of it. Yeah, this um, was one that when I first saw, I. Th- thought it was a sequel when I was young. I saw this when I was like 14 or 15 and I had seen it like probably within the same week I saw the original, like I rented them both kind of thing. And it is funny how it occupies that space between like, here's the same thing and here's actually part two, you know, kind yeah. of thing to it. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I love killing off characters we don't expect to be killed off. Yeah. And 
this this story does it really really effectively outside of the script of just the designs they do within the visuals that still just kind of haunt you just yeah like, it's kind of a recurring theme of a lot of the ones you picked psycho and um yeah uh alien and it, yeah another one it is such it is such an important thing in, in all stories to surprise and delight, but, but particularly in horror to keep the audience uh, off kilter, to know that um, you're willing to do things they don't want you to do. And, and, it, and it's very hard to create tension if the audience feels completely safe. So, um, there's a great, uh, a great quote, I can't remember, I, I'm not giving it enough credit. There was, I think it was a documentary on American horror through the 70s and 80s. And it was talking about the difference between Hitchcock where you were in the hands of a master. And, and, I, and I think they had forgotten Psycho, they had forgotten you know, the joy of Hitchcock and that Hitchcock would stay a step ahead of you. Uh, but the point they were trying to make is working within the studio system of being in the hands of a master where you feel a certain amount of safety and then watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre where you are now in the hands of a madman and you have no idea <laughs> yeah. what is going to happen. All the safety gauges are off. Yeah, they're all yeah. gone. Um, and to to kill off a character that you do not expect to be killed early on. Like later on, it's less effective because it's yeah. more of like you kill goose and top gun, you know, like it's a tearjerker and Meg Ryan is sad and you're sad. For Maverick. <laughs> yeah. Especially but, in a horror film where people, somebody's got to die, you're, yeah. you know, like it's yeah. going to start happening. So later you do it, the less it, shocking it is. It's just not the same of killing characters that, that we thought was the main lead and like, well, who's my lead now? Who's my, oh fuck, it's Kevin Dillon? I, yeah. I, I, wanna, I don't know, probably Well, like that's actually, we were just on, a, on another show talking about Razorback, the Russell Mulcahy movie about the killer pig. And one of the things I like about that is the opening scene is it's a grandfather and the outback taking care of the infant grandson, right? And you see the scene and you know, you know, like the killer pig's coming, the baby is not in danger. You know what I mean? How tense is it going to be? And then they kill the baby, right? Yeah. In this opening scene, right? And I, that's one thing I always love is sort of talking about safety in the hands of a master when films take like the, you, an audience is always identifying who's on the chopping block. Marion Crane is not on the chopping block. She is the star of this movie. Yeah. The grandfather is on the chopping block. The baby is not on the chopping block. And when films understand innately how to uh, sort of rip that sense of security away from an audience, it's always very effective. Yeah. Yeah. Scream's a great example. Yes. You know, like they, they put her on the poster. They sold her as a lead of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's very effective. Um, but the nice I, things about the blob is you don't realize things like setting up Kevin Dillon jumping over that bridge on his uh, bike is going to be an arc for that character, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, yeah, he does it now. Uh, and and one of the, the scenes that really resonates with me uh, is the killing of the sheriff. And that always spooked me. And what an interesting choice to position him as someone who's going to save her 
Yeah. And you don't even bother showing him guy. You know, like you just show him like in in it's such a great structural choice of she's on the phone and you like her, you've been watching her, and she's calling the sheriff and the sheriff's on his way. And like you just automatically start to envision the scene of how's the sheriff gonna get her out of this phone booth. And then you just kind of see him, you know, kind of <laughs> vaguely still alive. He's the king face in the gelatinous goop all around yeah, the phone booth. And it's it's such a haunting sense of, oh, she's gonna die. Yeah. And he's dead, and and there is no way. And then of course she does die. And the ability to kind of like what that does to the audience through the whole piece of not feeling like, I don't know who's going to live. Mm -hmm. You will kill off characters that I expect to live. Uh, And that gives you so much room. It gives you so much room as a writer and even as a director to, um, to create that tension and uh, keep the audience that's great. Uh, yeah. And yeah, they kill the kid I, in that one too. <laughs> one thing I like about this movie too, in terms of it, its characters, is when a movie like this, uh, I think is aspiring to being just good, clean fun in a certain way. But as a horror movie, that's kind of a, a strange thing because part of the good king fun is anybody can get killed at any time, as Joe Bob says, right? this movie remembers to make its characters likable. A lot of times horror films forget to make their characters likable and engaging in that way that you see in a lot of slasher films or GL or stuff like that. They forget to give any characterization at all. And I think that that's one of the things that really works about this movie is you're not wanting to see them dead at all yeah. and you in fact like them and you like spending time with them you yeah, know even the jock in the beginning like it's it's such an easy thing to make the jock like yeah. that boy unlikable guy um and then they make him like and then they kill him <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's better. It's honestly, it's honestly better if you're trying for that kind of um, of really heightened, like popcorn horror fun. Yeah, you know? and that's and that's really like I, I would probably, if I look at all of these, maybe this, maybe some of the other ones, but it's not a prestige picture in yeah. the slightest. It is meant to purely be fun and enthralling and jarring. And like it's made for teenagers and young twenty somethings, you know, like, <laughs> to have a good time, and it and it works, and it, and it, uh, and 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 for me, you always judge a movie on what it aspires, you know, like what's yeah. it trying to achieve, and does it achieve it well? Um, that that to me is like how we should be judged. Yeah, well, that's a great lead into our your next script, which is Jacob's oh. Ladder. Uh, sorry, Chris, we got to kind of move on a little bit quicker. I know, I know. Tom's got to uh, get going. Um, <laughs> which uh, is a good way to lead into the next uh, choice, which is Jacob's Ladder. Uh, which I kind of right off the bat want to ask you, Tom, because it's something I always wondered about this movie. Um, and spoilers, I guess, for anyone who hasn't seen Jacob's Ladder. But how soon do you think the script wants us to know? that Jacob is, is dead and that this, what we're seeing is an occurrence at Owl Creek sort of thing where we're seeing this long stretch of time that's actually a small moment 
uh, in his life, his subjective time passing in, a, in an instant. And this is the one of the bunch that I haven't seen recently. And I started watching it again. And I love the movie so much. I started watching it again. I was like, nope, I'm not going to watch this again. I'm going to wake and watch it with my wife. Uh, it's going to be a movie night. Really. So like, I didn't want to like, rush through it. Um, but I think it's the, the Danny Aiello scene where he's giving him a massage going, some people, like there's an angel. And, and, and then you're starting to go, oh, this isn't quite what we think it is, but it still holds off so well. I remember the, just again, of like trying to remember the first time you see it, trying to remember the emotional effect of the first time you see it. And there's, um, there, there's a, been a few other movies uh, some well-known and less so others well that are you know kind of the mind fuck movies of someone who's really dead you know <laughs> like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah sure. like the uh, I, I, I maybe mean, you guys know of an earlier one than carnival of souls but i well it's the hmm. it's the occurrence at owl creek bridge essentially you know? oh the twilight zone piece well no the uh the sh- yes yes it was yeah the movie was used as a twilight zone episode yes yeah but the Ambrose Beer story is what Chris is referring yeah, to. Yeah, I was referring to the Stort story, which is the same, like, the it, guy imagines so it's, it's escaping that, the hanging. Correct yeah. me wrong, that's a, that's a short story, right? Yeah, it's an mm-hmm. Ambrose Beer short story from, I think it's, like, as early as, like, 1898 is the first oh, example I can think of. Yeah, so that's the that's the earlier one. And then Carnival Souls is great. And then mm-hmm. there is, uh, there's a Brain Dead of Bill Pullman that came out around. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And that is not a movie I would have thought of coming up in a discussion of great screenplays. <laughs> <laughs> I still love it, though. Um, uh, so that, to me, when you pull that off, and like we're going to talk about Sixth Sense later on, if like when you pull that off, it's just always it just always works. I've never I've never seen it not work. Uh, but if it, but if you, if you guess it within the first two scenes, then it obviously isn't. But uh, of what? I think because I I think with this movie, I remember when I saw this movie when I was a teenager and I if I was didn't know he was dead, I knew something was up on that level. Right. And I still think it worked for me. That's one of the things I like about this movie is John John was pointing out how it opens with him getting stabbed and kind of going to like the subway esque purgatory and that maybe if you know in advance it's a really easy read i think it works even if you know when i when i watched it again uh recently i was impressed by how good it still is even with the mind fuck coming that yeah. this is just like you're saying on a scene by scene basis a lot of it's effect a very stylish direction yeah, this, you know? yeah. Uh, as soon as i started watching it again that's why i said i was like nope i'm saving this like yeah, i, I yeah. want to experience and, and i don't know if my wife has seen it or not yet so it'll be fun but it, it's also another great example of staying ahead of the audience and the audience thinking they know what's going on yeah, like it's such an important part of staying ahead of the audience. Like I said, like surprising the audience isn't that hard, right? Yeah. Um, but doing it in a satisfying way, which is they think they know, and then you build them. Film noir does this great film noir mysteries, particularly the modern film noir mysteries like Chinatown, L.A. Confidential. Of you, like. Oh, I, oh God, I know what's going on. Yeah, they got to nail those guys. Oh, wait, it's something else. 
Yeah. Oh, 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 okay, now I know what's going on. It's that, oh, oh no, it's something else. And they never necessarily pull out the rug from you. They just give you more information and it reveals a bigger, higher truth. Like that's, that's so important in keeping an audience because if the audience is confused and doesn't know what's going on, it's not fun. It's not, it's not enjoyable for the audience. And, if, and you don't feel fooled because you're not replacing the truth with, you know, like the truth, it, like it's, it's emptiness and then you're putting truth in there. But something that you think is true and then there's a new greater truth is, is what, it, what generates that, that pleasure from an audience in my mind. But and you can see too why, yeah, but you can see too by why, why those metaphysical elements of this movie made the script such a hard sell. I mean, it was floating around Hollywood for something like a decade before anyone was willing to make it. You know, an interesting fact I found out recently, um, uh, Bruce Joel Rubin, who wrote the script, mm-hmm. was uh, an NYU classmate with Brian De Palma, who actually directed his first student script. I didn't, um, I didn't know who was that old. Yeah, and... Um, when Adrian Lin finally got hold of the script and was determined to make it, the project he ended up dropping to do it was a bonfire of the vanities. <laughs> that is very funny. Uh, this also, movie, for a later conversation, nominated for a Razzie. For <laughs> yes, I know. Well, that's a big part of the conversation is look how many great writers are on here nominated oh, yeah. for Razzies. So many. Um, so many. It's, this uh, is a great pick. I was really interested in this. It's funny, along with The Blob, these are movies that I saw when I was a teenager that I just assumed were consensus classics. You know what I mean? That yeah. I just assumed everyone agreed The Blob remake and Jacob's Ladders are great. Uh, and it's interesting sort of culturally uh, that why some films get I think these are cultish classics, but I don't know. They definitely don't get held up alongside the other selections on your list or even like more cultish horror movies. I don't, I don't feel like I hear horror fans talking about these two movies a lot. Even though it's a little forgotten, I think a little bit. Yeah. On a, on a, on a side note, the very first script I ever sold um, was essentially Jacob's ladder as an action film. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, it was, I, I loved Jacob's Ladder so much. And um, I was like, let me change the genre on this. I bet we could change, you know, kind of like Groundhog Day has been, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, a comedy and a horror film. It's Groundhog Day, but a comedy. Uh, and so this, I did a kind of a Jacob's Ladder as a, uh, as an action film. Interesting. And making it. Yeah. Yeah. So if you ever see my Wesley Snipes movie, uh, called Nine Lies. Uh, it was written as unstoppable. Or written as, um, as Nine Lies. Uh, Lie of the Mind, I think, was like the first terrible title for it. <laughs> and then, then it became uh, unstoppable. Yeah. And and now it they have changed the title again. Like ten years after. Yeah, I was going to say, I have seen Unstoppable. I'm familiar with Unstoppable. I did not realize that's uh, Nine Lives. Is that so you're saying it got changed again? Uh, Yeah, because I guess they didn't want to confuse with the good Unstoppable, which is the train train movie. Tony Scott, yeah. And so now it's called Nine Lives, and it's the best reviews I have on iTunes because they somehow mixed it up with an art film called Nine Lives. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And so the 
the, the ratings are pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, though under iTunes, the British Tom Vaughn still gets the credit. Not <laughs> So, as you said, uh, there have been variations on this idea, um, this ghost, this idea of ghost or something weird's going on. It has this big twist ending. You, for your next pick, put two different scripts together: The Sixth Sense, uh, of course, the M Night Shyamalan movie, mm-hmm. and then also Stir of Echoes, uh, which was adapted by David Coep from the Richard Matheson book. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I remember when these movies came out and I felt like, oh, David Coep must hate The Sixth Sense so yeah. much yeah. for coming out the same year as his movie. That's so lost in the shuffle. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think in a, lot, in a few ways is superior to, to The Sixth Sense. I would agree, yeah. I love The Sixth Sense. I really, really do. I haven't seen I'll, either since they came out and my memory was Stir of Echoes is the good one, but this is like... A twenty-year-old yeah. memory at this point. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I would see it again, and I, and I, and I think um, I, we, because M Night has become what he has become, kind of his own kind of brand. Um, we, we kind of forget how good the Sixth Sense is, um, yeah. and it's so good. It's so good. You barely notice how bad. 15 of its last 20 minutes are. (laughs) Um, But the scene work and again, the relationships and um, uh, staying ahead of the audience is thinking the story is about the kid and thinking about it's his journey. And, and then realizing, well, of course, it's Bruce, Bruce Willis's story. So, of course, it's his story. And it's about his journey. And, and the kid is actually the agent of change. And, but, uh, uh, you know, we had mentioned about earlier about the collection of scenes uh, of just going through the scenes between the mom and the kid. Of like, they're so heartbreaking. And they're so effective. And this mom just at her wit's end, having no idea how to help her little girl or his, her little boy uh, who is uh, maybe going insane and not talking to her about it. And he can't express anything about it. And, um, and the relationship he develops with Bruce Willis, and of course he's trying to redeem himself. Um, and it's such a well-polished machine up until I, I'm still not a fan of, of how they ended it with, with a mother slowly poisoning her child. And it just seems to this day seems out of place to me of like a movie so much about a mother's love and so much about their your relationships and your mentors and, the, and, and, and people protecting you. Uh, it yeah. feels a little out of place. Like, I, I don't know. It just feels like, why, why of all things for him to solve, why that? And I will I, say Shyamalan has trouble with endings. I would say very few of his films do you think about and go, ah, great last 10 minutes. Yeah. Most of the time you go, ah, you know, that is, that is, that was not what I liked about that. Yeah. And, and it, and it oddly enough, cause everyone goes like, Oh, cause we're, we're trying to recapture the sixth sense, but then you forget, well, outside of the twist ending to the sixth sense, the ending wasn't very effective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Can I ask you, do you think that this might be another, uh, 
Penn's answer since I'm asking <laughs> too broadly. Do you feel like cheating in a screenplay matters? Like there's a lot of sleight of hand in Sixth Sense as far as s- sustaining the twist, like you're going to build to this twist. So as far as where scenes end or begin, how poor performances are stilted or aimed to create the impression that he's alive when he's not. You know, it's a script that if you think about what was happening 30 seconds before that scene started, the illusion of it falls apart, right? So the twist is really has to be cheated by the writing and the filmmaking throughout, which I feel like is a contrast to Psycho where there are no cheats in Psycho, you know? Do you think it, do you think cheating matters? Do you think it undermines other things you're trying to build or is it, hey, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't? Once again, I will ask a more incisive question. Yeah, I, I, I do think there is cheating where you lie to the audience. Yeah. I, I think telling the audience a character is dead as the filmmaker, not, a, not like a character. character yeah. You know, but as a filmmaker of like, they turned the corner and then the car they were in blew up. Yeah. They're not really dead. You know, yeah. that, that, that to me is cheating. I think, um, like, or to a, keep it with Hitchcock, like stage fright, where there's the flashback where we see the different person committing the murder, right? And it's a false flashback that it presents. Right. That always yeah, feels like, get yeah. this out of my face, movie. That's cheating. That's, that's cheating. I, uh, uh speaking of a night, um, there was his film that he produced called Devil, which, which is by a couple of really good filmmakers who I like. Um, but when, you're, when you have a who, who is guilty and like you're trying to yeah. find who's the guilty one and you eliminate a suspect by telling the audience they're dead, yeah. that's cheating. And like, that's our twist is the guy we completely told you was dead. <laughs> yeah. It's actually the person who did it. Like that's, that to me is cheating. Now, in the sixth sense, I believe as much as more so than cheating is they're actually kind of duplicating um, that character's experience, which is he is coming in and out of reality, sees a little bit at a time, isn't, doesn't, like he's in a dream state himself, kind of there and then over here and over there. He doesn't have the information that he's alive. And so we don't have the information that he's alive. That to me isn't cheating. That to me is just perspective storytelling. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And the, um, it's funny because obviously Sixth Sense has a lot of narrative similarities to Jacob's Ladder in terms of kind of keeping the audience in the dark. But I feel honestly that Stir of Echoes has a lot more in common tonally with uh, Jacob's Ladder, because the things that we go through with Kevin Bacon's character, especially when he's in the trance and we see him in the empty movie theater and things like that, there's so much uh, cool visual stuff that kind of relates into that sort of, that same sort of mindset that Jacob finds himself in. And the other horror screen, great horror screenplay that I am reminded of watching it is Jeffrey Bohm's uh, adaptation of the, the Dead Zone for David Cronin. Oh, yeah. Sure. sure. Yeah. And I also, of like, how much of. I hadn't really noticed this, uh, but most of these characters are pretty blue collar characters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, like Jacob's Ladder, he's a mailman. Um, and uh, Stir of Echoes, he works for a phone company. 
and and I and, and I don't I do I, there is something a little more distant about a child psychologist, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. there, there is, there is, uh, an educational level, even though I, I, you know, I, I think I'm, I have an MFA, so I guess I'm an educated person. <laughs> I still don't like a PhD. I'm like, what kind of creep gets a PhD? You know, like, kind of, who does that? And uh, who thinks they're so good that they deserve a PhD? (laughs) So you sympathize quicker with the guy who works for the phone. uh, Yeah, like there is. And and also what I liked about him is is that character. And to me, this is such an important part of this story is that he did have like those silly aspirations as a kid of like being in a band and and I'm going to be a musician. And it's not one of those stories of you should have kept your dream, like you should have kept doing it, or, yeah, yeah. or like God, you quit too soon. You're you're so talented. Like yeah. there's no doubt in our minds that he is a moderately talented cover band guitarist. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> there isn't uh, much like Kevin Bacon himself. Much like Kevin Bacon himself. <laughs> it's like yeah, I'm sure he can play guitar. I'm sure he's fun at a bar, and I'm sure. You know, uh, and now he's dealing with the reality that he needs overtime to take care of the kid and, and to keep going. And um, and they have a nice neighborhood and, and like they're building this this life out of, a, you know, blue collar wages. Yeah. And there is that lack of satisfaction like that to me is such an interesting thing of is this all in my life and this ghost and this murder becomes like he says in the movie of like this is the most important thing that has happened to me and it's all because he's completely lost touch with and then she and then she throws back into his face right like oh we're not important you know that that shitty life you're talking about is us your family yeah. yeah I like it's like to me like those relationships and that character journey and the desire to be more than you are and missing what's going on uh, right in front of you, um, and also there is the uh, uh, like such a good example of like why the writing is good of him trying to duplicate what he did to see the to see the ghost and like yeah. sitting back with the remote and just like, like I, what is I doing? What was I doing this? And it's such <laughs> an effective part of storytelling of characters doing what we find familiar of like, Oh, I would do that. I, that's what I would do. That's what I would do. Uh, and finding humor within the characters rather than the genre. And, and I was thinking about this today because I knew we were going to talk about it. Like there's this comic moment in The Conjuring where the door creaks open. It's like the only undeserved um, scare or jump in the whole movie. And it creaks open and then everyone turns and turns and turns. And then the toilet flushes and the guy comes out and he's like, what? And the audience gets a good laugh out of it. And it's an effective laugh. But that kind of laugh is about filmmaking and expectations. So it's, it's, it doesn't draw you closer to these characters. It doesn't draw you closer to uh, the movie. It's still an effective laugh. But whereas when Kevin Bacon does that and you get the same kind of laugh, 
your affection for this man grows and yeah. your attachment to the story grows. And that's the difference of like easy laughs, easy shots, easy scares, and, and laughs and scares that build your relationship with the movie. Uh, they're very different things. They're both fine. I'm not criticizing one, but I'm saying the other one is so much more important uh, yeah. and harder to do. And you can cut one from your movie and not the other. You know, you can oh, cut that point. bathroom yeah. joke and no one will ever notice no. it's gone. No one will ever suspect, you know, cuts leave residue sometime. That cut won't. Yeah, you that's, know? that's the tension. Turner. Whereas one's a character, yeah. It's uh, but the the movie is filled with these really great moments, and and I and I've never read the short story, but um, of watching those, like the choice of m those horrible kids, and like their emotional journey as this thing is happening as well. Yeah. And where one kid is clearly a sociopath, and another kid was like, I was not fucking down for this. Yeah. Um, and, and this, this poor girl of, can I kiss you? And she's like, okay. Like there are like those choices where like a less interesting writer would say she runs or like, no, no, no. Yeah. But she grows to get physically uncomfortable that she is curious and, and she's slow and no one treats her this way. And yeah. Um, yeah, it's just like there's just so many smart choices that you don't notice at the time but affect you emotionally Yeah, that build on the experience and, and makes those payoffs so much more effective. Let's move on to your next uh, selection, which is the uh, same director as The Conjuring. It's Insidious, which is the screenplay is by Lee Wannell. Uh, they're both directed by James Wan. Um, this was an interesting selection for me. It's going to sound like I'm criticizing this movie to, to set up the construction, but I actually really love this movie. Sure. And, I think, and I think James Wan is a phenomenally talented writer. I think Lee Wanell has gone on to prove himself to be a yeah. really interesting filmmaker and writer in his own right. This to me is a movie that um, I think really works. I think there's a lot of life in it, but it's, an homage that's so indebted to Poltergeist. It does not exist without Poltergeist. Yeah. How do you breathe that life and do such a direct homage that's not a remake? Um, like how do, I essentially want to know, how did they get away with it? Because I agree this movie yeah. works and I agree it feels like its own thing. But if I watched both them and Poltergeist this week and it is it's like they sat there with Poltergeist and were like, we're going to do that in so many ways and in so right. many tiny details and character details and its conception of scenes, its conception of overall arc, so many of its ideas. It's almost like what you were saying with the blob where it, it expects you to have seen Poltergeist almost so it can play a few narrative tricks later on. Yeah. I'm just Poltergeist and the entity, which they lean into by casting Barbara Hershey in the movie, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's a good point because I thought about Poltergeist of like whether Poltergeist was going to go on. <laughs> and, uh, and it could be, you know, when I think about it of have I gotten so used to Poltergeist? Yeah. Because uh, Poltergeist doesn't scare me as much. Yeah. 
And I consider Poltergeist much more of a fun thrill ride yeah. than I do a, a scary film. Uh, now, did I find Poltergeist absolutely terrifying as a kid? I honestly don't remember. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but all the good things that I'm about to say about Insidious, I would probably say about Poltergeist as well. Um, and just thinking about like that, we're talking about like laughs that build character. Uh, yeah. And in Poltergeist, the laugh with the chair as they put the chair down. And oh, they yeah. Put Carol Ann. And then they put her with the helmet on and, and let her go. And, and it burns. how happy she is and <laughs> how excited she is that she does it. And it's familiar because it looks like something we would do. It endears us to these characters. Uh, and of course, establishes of just like, this is going to get deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah. Well, it's also, it's terrifying it and they don't seem to understand, which is really tense for an audience. It's that, yeah. you know, uh, maybe the opposite of being one step ahead is the characters in the movie are one step behind you as the audience creates a huge amount of tension is like, your chair moving is not fun, lady. Don't put your, you know, I watched this with my my son, who's a big horror kid he's just like a horror kid and when he puts the daughter in the circle my son was like don't with his reaction to it you know this like physical like do what like do not do that kind of reaction what's the common audience reaction right why don't they get out of the house you know why yeah. are they or yeah, going into the house why are they doing that's that? that's what makes haunted house films so hard of like why aren't you leaving and i and i thought insidious just from the very conception of like they're not hot in the house yeah, and the kid is such is such an ingenious device. Of yeah, like, it's not gonna matter. That's exactly what my son said. Is why are they spending the night in the house again after they think it's solved? You know, and I didn't have a good answer other than people think of their homes as their own homes. You yeah. know, I think that that's that's a bit of a thematic answer. Yeah. But you do go. I think everybody who sees Poltergeist has that question of like, wait, they're just going to sleep there again tonight? If those were my kids, yeah. I'm at least sleeping in the room with them. Yeah. I, I love that choice that Insidious makes of like they're haunting this kid. And, and, and again, there might be bias as far as like Insidious being made in the last 10 years and Poltergeist. Uh, but um, what I like about Insidious, again, is going back to the relationships, going back uh, to this couple, um, I still rem like if I think about Poltergeist, there's a couple scenes I remember as like emotional character scenes, but the stuff that I tend to remember about Poltergeist is um, the ghost in the air and uh, little tricks of, yeah, we watched this thing move over nine hours and then they open the door and like, <laughs> and the Hulk's writing on a, yeah, like everything. And they're great cinematic moments. Um, but it's definitely like kind of what I think of like movie moments. Yeah. Like they're, they're not, they're, they, it, it's not two characters going through an experience together and being altered by it. And that's not to put down Poltergeist at all. I mean, I, I, I think it's brilliant. And, uh, but I, I do wonder of like how these characters, how ultimately has this affected this family outside of 
uh, we got to get the hell out of there. Gray streaks in their hair. Can yeah. I ask you this? When you're writing as a screenwriter and you're heavily influenced by something, do you have a tendency to want to, when you're doing your own screenplay, I'm inspired by this, I, by this idea, but there's some things I'd like to fix about it. Like, why do they come back to the house? Oh, we'll attach the ghost, the haunting to the person. Do you feel that temptation? Um, it, it's, it's a good question as far as, as like, movies that you admire but you definitely you it, it's all problem solved like horror movies like uh mobile phones have just like made everything more challenging yeah, yeah. like action sure. films you know mobile phones make action films more challenging so but it's just they're just story problems because that's how that's about the, this how about this haunted phone what are you doing with that solves that problem <laughs> I, I, I have confidence Stephen King has written three. And, but like the scenes that I remember about Insidious tend to be um, the character pieces, like the character scenes that I remember, like with the son's in a coma, they think he's in a coma. And of course the husband is just, spending extra hours at work and he's not cheating on his wife. He's not doing anything like that. He's just like, I want to be home. I'm going to look for excuse to do homework and doing tests and him coming home. And she's like, what the fuck? Why am I here all alone? Why am I? <laughs> and, and it kind of staying ahead of the audience of thinking it's her story. Uh, so like to me of having this guy being kind of set up as, as the husband who's not attentive enough and he's more going to be an obstacle to her story. And then at the midpoint of the story, we start to learn it's his story. And yeah. he, so like she's completely driving the first half of the movie. And then at the midpoint, she's now passive and he's driving the story. That's very interesting to me. Like that's, uh, it's again of like this, I don't believe anyone dies in Insidious, right? So like the stakes of this is it's hard to establish real stakes without someone die. Um, I guess the kid in a coma, but you're like. The child endangerment affects. Yeah, but. This, this but, movie affects me a lot that there's something awful happening to your kid hits me the way the beginning of the exorcist hits yeah, me. Yeah, but I was you thinking know, that, isn't that more the second half of the movie? Yeah. But I guess, I guess just a coma and the kids in a coma in a haunted house. Yeah. And you're like, what the fuck's going yeah. on? <laughs> so yeah, I think that's effective. And also what I do like about it is the lack of special effects of like the ghost just yes. pops up. Like it's just a big, burly, scary looking guy who's in the same room all of a sudden and how terrifying that is. Uh, and, there, and then, of course, James Wan's very good at, at cutting away from the scene because a lot of these ghost stories, it's not like the initial scare is scary, but the ghost is going to get less scary every second after a certain point. Yeah. James Wan's very good at like cutting away at peak scary and then usually cutting to someone hearing them scream. And, yeah. then, and then running into the room and the person's in hysterics and it, and it works every time. Yes. Uh, you know, if it, 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 it's like such a great device to cut at uh, peak scary, but that's a directorial choice. And, yeah. Um, and then the other scene is when she accuses him of not believing her 
And this poor guy is like moved. He's changed houses. He's done everything he can. And then dealing with, uh, which is uh, a scene you have to have in every supernatural story of the person starting to believe. Like the person who didn't believe before starting to believe. And it's a very difficult scene to write. And I've had to write a lot of them. Um, because the audience knows, you know, like the audience is fully aware they're in a haunted house movie. They're fully aware yeah. of a monster movie. They're fully aware, you know, like whatever it is, they know. And to have characters who refuse to accept that they're in that movie can be very, very frustrating to an audience if you don't write those scenes believably and naturally and with emotion. Uh, and this movie does it really well. And those relationships do it really well. Um, and I think The Conjuring is a better directed movie, uh, but Insidious is better written. I was just going to say, it's kind of kicked off along with the paranormal activity movies, the whole Blumhouse sort of revolution of the last decade. What are your thoughts on Blumhouse in general? Do you think most of their movies are well-written? Do you kind of think that some of them get churned out a little too quickly to be well-written? Do you think they'd be better if they were written by Tom Vaughn? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so far he's, he's passed on a few of my films so i <laughs> i usually don't hold a producer in high regard until they tell me how great i am and then i'll tell <laughs> the genius producers um good stance I, I think he's got a great deal where like when they make movies that don't turn out that well they don't have to release them you know yeah. they they tend to put them away and like no one needs to see that. So like when you see that Blumhouse movie that's straight to cable or straight to Netflix, like, you know, it didn't, it didn't work. Uh, But there is with any producer and it's, and it's, there is that point where a producer is starting to able to get almost anything made. And yeah. if those budgets, he greenlights anything, you know, like he can greenlight, he doesn't need anyone's permission to greenlight a movie. So um, it's just a different ballgame. He's a studio head, you know, he's not a producer anymore. He's a studio yeah. head. Sure. Um, then you get like bigger producers like Neil Moritz, who's been producing as long as I've been in the business, you know, mm-hmm. 25 years. And he, he, you know, his movies are hit and miss, but he's in the studio system. So like just getting movies made is so hard. Um, and, and this is, this is the, like the tough thing that people really have a hard time dealing with when they get into the business of um, if a movie is greenlit or a movie can get made, it will get made. And it doesn't matter if it's good or not, you know, it doesn't matter. Like getting a movie made, like this is a, a huge, I was, I was buddies with a director, um, who was, was directing a, um, uh, uh, a Neil Moritz movie. And uh, this was late 90s. And the script was okay. Great concept. Okay script. And there were just some natural changes that just had like any common sense had to be made. And so he asked me to read it. And I said, well, you got to move this around. Like you can't, after she's seen this death, She's not going to be convinced this other one's a suicide. You have to reverse them. Um, and Jamie was like, of course. I don't know why I didn't think about that. Da, 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 da. He goes to the goes to the producer and, and, and Neil Moritz goes, we're about to shoot. 
Like we can't make that, if we make that change, yes, it's a better change, but if we make that change, it's going to spook the studio. <laughs> it spooks the studio. We have the risk of going into development again, and then the movie doesn't get made. And, and this was the genius of Neil Moritz to the, like, he doesn't have to worry about that anymore because he's Neil Moritz, but he had that instinct early on of like, it does the, all that matters is the movie gets made. I know a friend of mine has a very similar story. I will avoid giving up any identifying details because I don't want to get anyone in trouble, but he was very successful at festival success. And he was called in for a pitch meeting on a studio film that was going to get made. Do you want to direct this? And he was going over the script with the producer and he's like, look, this script has a big problem. Um, it's if you just switch this here the, so that the first section of it takes place in a different part of the world, right? Mm -hmm. You'll solve all of these later problems and you'll be able to make this thing that is very shaky to me really good. And she was like, oh my God, those changes are great. What great insight. We'd love to hire you to do the movie. We really, really like you. And he was like, cool. Are we going to make the changes? And she's like, no, it's greenlit. And he's like, don't you want to make the movie better? And she goes, it's not that kind of a movie. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, so producers who are used to working with studios have a perfected the art of. <laughs> but it was like basically. same thing of just like it's you don't understand it's greenlit. We're doing this thing, yeah. you know, and your job is to come in and do this thing. Yes, yeah, do not anything else. Nothing more, and that's yeah. like a per, like there's no harder job in Hollywood than an independent producer. Yeah, you do not get paid unless the movie gets made. Yeah, like you don't. And like a, a screenwriter, we pay whether the movie gets made or not. You know, like I can turn in a bad draft. Yeah. I'm still going to get paid. The producer doesn't. Uh, now you get to a certain point where like Neil Moritz is now and like he's like, he's just churning out movies. He doesn't have to worry about it. He just needs to keep delivering product. Yeah. Uh, but earlier on in his career, like he wasn't getting paid unless the movie got made. And so he learned very quickly like how to get movies made. And then that became his genius, not making great movies. Yeah. You know, some of his movies are great, you know, some of them aren't. Yeah. I think that if anything, it requires more genius to get a movie made than it does to make a good movie. I believe so too. I really do. It's just a rare, rare skill. I I've been working on a movie and, um, there was a stage through the movie where we thought we were greenlit and everybody hated the rewrites that the director did and it was too late to change. And so the, basically the throughout everyone was like, we were all exhausted. We were all tired. We're going to make a bad movie. <sighs> well, well, it's either that or not make the movie at all and not get paid more money. Uh, we're going to go yeah. make a bad movie. It was, it's, it's discouraging. It's uh, it's depressing, but people got to put food on the table. Like you know, we, you know, people we have to make a living. And that that's what's been you know. I am obviously operating at a much, I'm sure, lower amount of money than you. But the past few years, I have been you know surviving a little bit on doing screenwriting, and it was strange how early you realize a lot of this is purely theoretical this will never get made and i will keep working on it as long as they keep giving me bits of money to keep working on this thing and what i find strange with independent 
cinema and independent producing is a lot of times it reaches a point where they're like, hey, we're in this together. This is a project and we're going to start working on it for the goodness of our heart to just get it done now. And early on, I'd be like, yeah, great. And those don't get made either. So at a certain point, it just becomes like, yeah, great. Like, I work very cheap. Send me another check, you know? <laughs> That's, that is super duper idea you have. And I, I really believe in it too. You know, you would be surprised how small amount of money you can get me to keep working for. But it is, it will be an amount of money, you yeah. know, that kind of thing. Exactly much. Yeah, like you, I think you will be shocked at that number. <laughs> but, but like, no, I'm not just going to keep writing, especially so much of the stuff. Like, when there's no green light, I also understand the philosophy of there's nothing keeping from these ludicrous ideas from throwing these things out of orbit. The, I'm sure you have had the experience of you just get script notes on a first draft that are like, what if? It was a comedy, you know, and you're like, sure, man, you know, but it's just so yeah, out of orbit. The green light that, at least keeps it what it's going to be. And, and that is another skill of yeah. being able to work through development. And yeah. we, have, we have a few A-list writers within the industry uh, whose greatest skill is working through development. It isn't screenwriting. Yeah. They're not phenomenal writers. Uh, they're good. Don't get me wrong. They're very yeah. they're good, but they're not like our geniuses. Yeah. Their personal genius is being able to work through development, working with executives, being able to get insane notes, not piss people off. Yeah. Execute to a certain extent. Uh, you know, avoid those bad notes. Yeah. Uh, and give the impression of being fully engaged. That's what I also realized is that if you say sure to everything, people go, they don't, you don't give a shit, you know? Yeah. And that that's part of it too, is that like, uh, I don't want to say pretending like you believe, but being fully engaged. And I bet some of their yeah. personal genius is legitimately wanting to work through the process yeah. in and a I, way through, that engages I, me. I've been through a lot of phases in my career. Back in my drinking days, I was very, very difficult. I thought I was a genius. I thought I was the smartest one in the room. I had to argue notes openly. And uh, it, I, I, to this day, I look back, and I have no idea what gave me that kind of hootspot. I, 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 I'm just flabbergasted. It's and probably that you thought what was doing best for the artwork. Yeah, you know, I really, think that really funny is I didn't know that much back then. You yeah. know, like, that's, <laughs> like, like but I, that's the way. I am so much better at this now than I was then, and yet so much more like, well, it, it might work, it might not. Like, 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 like yeah. my experience has humbled me more than anything else, and yet I'm still a much more confident writer. Yeah, uh, but the, but I guess part of what I've learned so much is that uh, there are diff there are, there are a lot of effective ways to obtain the same goal to get to the same thing of like oh that's the effect we want out of this scene I bet there's four or five ways we can do it let's find yeah. the one we like whereas 20 years ago it was you no know, this the way I'm doing it is the best fucking way yeah yeah. Uh, it's like the difference it. between being like trying to be a home run hitter and occasionally understanding you can slap some singles and it's just as, yeah, as meaningful. Great, yeah, it's a great example of like, 
the blob doesn't have to win an academy award you know yeah it just there's a man on third exactly it's all about the rbis yeah (laughs) so on the other end of the spectrum from all the studio notes and uh the big productions and independent horror movies your final selection tom is the invitation uh which is written by phil hay and matt manfredi uh, and then directed by karen uh kusama uh my as i said before i think a lot of did i make a mistake no, no, I just, I just said it's so good. I'm just oh, like, I thought you were shaking your head like wrong, wrong. <laughs> um, what I uh, back to what I was saying before about how so many modern movies take uh, their cues from the classic scripts, some of the great scripts that we've been talking about. Um, this is a good example, I think, in that it kind of uh, picks up on the paranoia, right, from Rosemary's Baby, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, exploits some of the same sort of. Uh, reality kind of shifting and the perspective of the main character that we follow uh, as we kind of learn things along with them. Is that sort of what appeals uh, to you about it or what? I've seen this three times now, the last time I saw it with my wife. Uh, And again, just going back to that, like it's so much fun to see this stuff through somebody else's and you go, Oh, I'm not the only one that that freaked out. I'm not the only one, but that spooked. Um, the the movie is so confident the script is so confident with what it's building and there's so little going on and you rely totally on the relationships to build the tension you rely totally on a sense of something has happened uh just the fact of knowing being at your ex in the house you used to live with is awkward um and and again like, there's one basic question here, which is, are people, is this deadly or not? You know? Yeah. That's, that's, and to have that question go on for 60 minutes and do so effectively is such a tremendous challenge that they met of everything's, oh, wait, he locked the door? Why is the door unlocked? What's going on there? Uh, I'll go talk to her before she leaves. And then I'm trying to figure out of like, it's such an effective uh, story of you going through his same journey of I'm being ridiculous. Now we watching a movie have the advantage he doesn't, which is we know we're in a movie, you know, like we know like that there's going to be some narrative satisfaction here (laughs) (laughs) and, and, and he doesn't. And so we're probably going to lean more towards it's, it's awful, but I still think they do a great job of, of even us going like when the guy shows up, the guy he thinks is dead, he's like, he was here and now he's gone. And then he shows up at the door. Like what a great device to make us go. Uh, uh, oh, this is ridiculous. Um, and, and the scenes of uh, this cult, and the video of somebody dying yeah and just the honest emotional reactions amongst friends of like like obviously if this guy was a total stranger you'd be like it's such a different thing but this is a person that you really like yeah you really love and so you're trying to be diplomatic about 
this is really weird. Are you in a cult? Yeah. Uh, and how do you ask someone who's in a cult that you love if they're in a cult or not? Like, I, I, I just think the, the pitch perfect emotions um, through the whole thing is, is so effective and such a great ending and such a great conclusion to all these questions. Um, and to really have nothing but tension happen through most of the film and then to explode with that kind of violence is a, is a really hard thing to pull off well. A lot of films will try to like, oh, we'll just solve this all with violence. Yeah. yeah. And, and they don't do it well because it is feeling like, oh, this is a cheat. The violence is a cheat. Yeah. And as an audience member, you're asked to separate the tension from the awkwardness and the uncomfortableness of the situation, you know, bring these people together in a social uh, situation where there are strangers coming in and somebody who's supposed to be there is missing. Um, yeah. You're trying to figure out exactly, like you said, what of this is, is, is sinister and what of it is just, you know, regular awkward human interaction. Yeah. And so much of it is, well, this is a past relationship. This is the mother of my child who passed away. Like the movie changes dramatically if it's just another friend. You know? yeah. That's, and there's just those really effective choices. Um, Can I ask you, sure. how, how do you avoid, you know, you mentioned it's the mother of their de- deceased child. It's a, his ex that a, a screenplay avoids being exploitative and cheap when dealing with real emotions like suffering and grief. What do you think this script does to sort of dodge those, like making it a cheap girl in a fridge type plot device? You know, how do you think this movie, like what's its artistic mediation to kind of not just make it cheap and exploitative, this, these real heavy emotions? That's a great question. I, I, and I, and I, I think it's always about playing the emotions as truthfully as possible and let the audience have their own emotions. Yeah. And, or at least, at least make the audience feel like they're having their own emotions. Let the, that's a really great phrase. Let the audience have their own emotions. Sorry. As soon as, as soon as the, the thing that makes us feel manipulated is that we detect dishonesty. Yeah. Like we feel if what we're watching, we believe and is emotionally truthful, we will not feel manipulated. Yeah. Because we are witnessing something personal and intimate. We can, there'll be a ton of other emotions of just intimacy and like uncomfortable, like we shouldn't be watching this, but we won't feel manipulated. We only feel manipulated when we feel it's untruthful. I'm trying to remember. I can't remember. What is the score like on this movie? Because that's something that always trips me up when scores are really strongly insisting on emotional cues. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember the music to this film, which means it did a good job for me, which means I feel like I wasn't being pushed around by yeah. it. I, I think it is. I, uh, I, I know I downloaded it off of iTunes at one point, but... Yeah. Uh, I, I will listen to background music uh, to scores I like when I'm writing a genre. Yeah. Um, but I have the same thing. It was like, I can't think of like, oh, that's the invitation theme. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that. yeah, exactly. I don't know. I don't know what that is. 
I mean, obviously, that's not always bad. I think it, when we say psycho, I think we might be able to conjure oh, that music yeah. in our head. <laughs> I think that might suggest some names to an audience, yeah. but I thought that was a... Uh, an and I think this is the right movie to not be there. Uh, anyway, so, uh, yeah, I, I love this movie so much. And it's usually... Um, you can certainly look at great scenes and go, oh, I love this scene and that sort of thing. And you kind of break it down. But at the end of the, at the end of the day, really, like I just went through which movies do I remember so strongly? Which movies do um, af affected me? Um, and then later on, like the second or third time I saw it, I started to more appreciate the craft of it. Yeah. Like that's a fairly consistent thing amongst these, whereas like the initial experience, because when you go through enough structures, you go through enough scripts, it, it's, you know, if you're noticing the craft while watching, it, it's, it's, it's not gripping you. It's yeah. the kind of movie too that's so, like you said, minimized and so intimate. You can't imagine them straying very far from the original script. You really feel like you're seeing the screenplay play out in front of you. Yeah, yeah. it feels almost like a play in that yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, and it, and also the film caught me totally off guard. I didn't know what to expect when I started watching it. Like that was yeah. such a uh, a huge surprise as well. Um, and then just the non-screenwriting stuff, like. There's one performance that's kind of weird and awkward and like, I don't know if this is good acting or not. And then, and then like the other performances are top notch and then the casting of like the big guy. It's a great character actor. I can't remember his name, but John Carroll Lynch. Yeah. John Carroll Lynch is so good. And, and, um, and what a fascinating career he's had of like so physically intimidating as a serial killer a couple of times, but yet like in sitcoms is like the friendly husband. That's hilarious. And yeah. Like what, what a, what a wonderful actor. True um, character actor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, I, I like the distinction of talking about all these as far as like the writing compared to the directing and, but every single one of these films are superbly directing. But I would rather I would rather have a a workmanlike director on a on a really good screenplay as far as like being consistent and giving you a more um, likelihood of success. Yeah, and there's also some of these. Uh, I think the uh, strength of the script ends up in a funny way uh, illustrating the limitations of the directors in the context of their larger career, like Adrian Lyne or, or um, Chuck Russell. You know what I mean? Where it's uh, not that these are bad filmmakers in some yeah. way, but when you pair them with a very good script, it demonstrates what they are as an artist in an interesting way, you know, and what they're capable and not capable of. I think truthfully, even Alien is that where I am not overtly blown away by the majority of Ridley Scott's career. Yeah, you know? yeah like he did his best work within 
when you get him a good script too, you know, and there's even times where what he's good at can sort of calcify the material. You have a movie like legend, which is almost impossible to sit through despite him directing the hell out of it. Like it's as, it's as well, or certainly as overtly directed as a Hillian, you know, in some ways, whereas like the two of them that I love the most are this and uh, are alien and the duelist, which I think both are the best script far and away he ever had to work with yeah know? unquestionably yeah i have to i still haven't seen the duelist oh really it's yeah. a delight it's Check a delight out. it's a delight I'm writing it it's, down see it's duelist. really you should it's keith, you won't there's keith carradine's in that right? yeah yeah he's one of my favorites so i just like keith carradine in the 70s i can just watch yeah and it's oh, yeah. looser than a lot of ridley scott's films too it's 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 very good. It's fun. It's it's a fun movie. Yeah. And um, it's also like it's also in comparison to like Alien, which is an absolute classic. It's one yes. of the best movies ever made. And what's what is that like <laughs> what's that like filming that so early in your career? Yeah. And yes. and, and the rest of your movies, I mean really Scott's always gonna be competent, you know, like yeah. he's always like there's never a time where it's like it's yeah. just shit and bunch of hits it's not like he burned out after yeah. that he's got yeah. he's got decades worth yeah. of hits to stack so, up there too so we go like well what happened you know like but everything compared to a classic is going to yeah. go in comparison but him compared to anybody else is still phenomenal yeah so it's only, the- it's only compared to his own fucking genius at one point in time <laughs> to make one of the greatest movies of all time that like he's a, it's funny somewhat of a letdown in uh in college we had a, a teacher Laszlo Zabo who was friends with all the French new wave guys he's an actor but he's also a director in his own right and he's in like he was good buddies with he's a bunch of Godard movies good buddies with Truffaut and he said in 79 he was walking with Truffaut and they were talking about oh what are the best movies you've seen this year oh well the Tim Drum is very very good this is a very very good movie and, and a few other things they're listing and then Truffaut goes you know the best movie of the year is Alien and Laszlo goes of course <laughs> but it's like they had to work around to admitting that like <laughs> Alien really is the best movie of that year, you know? If, if you've even got Truffaut, who was like famously horror film allergic on your, uh, on your side, you know you've really <laughs> come accomplished something. So, Tom, I want to throw a question at you, and if it's catching you off guard, don't worry about it. Do, can you think of a film that you ever, that you ever saw that you thought, uh, this screenplay is phenomenal, the director is totally fucking it up? And I didn't write... <laughs> yeah yeah something you just thought like this script in the hands of somebody else would have been incredible not off not off the top of because it's it's because i'm not sure you would notice that at first viewing mm-hmm. yeah you know, like yeah like you wouldn't notice you would just be like what the hell's going on uh and then only later like you'd look at you'd break it down and go this should have worked but these this taste is to like because at that point it's at that point you're dealing with people who've all gotten paid really good money. They're fairly competent at their job, you know, like there's something normally goes wrong. Something normally goes wrong. Um, It's either studio studio interference or director gone crazy. 
<laughs> yeah, like it, it really is. Like it, it's. I, I, I guess you could say a bad script, and some, and but that's that could be defined as studio interference, where a studio was just getting an IP out. You know, like yeah. they were just like we, you know, we we got the rights to the Flintstones, and we got to make this movie. Yeah, we set the date, and and so, uh, but, uh. And like I said, that one movie we had where like all of us on the team, but the director knew we were going to make a bad movie. All of us knew we were going to make a bad movie. Uh, But that one director thought he's going to make just art. He just thought he was going to be genius. He thought he was going to be making something amazing. Uh, But it was just purely his hubris, you know? Yeah. So, but for the most part, it's something didn't work a choice a stylistic choice it's you know like johnny depp decided to do that performance yeah like it's there there's something robert pattinson decided on that accent yeah yeah like it's can i tell you what my answer to this question is john i know you didn't ask me i think Wes Craven has incredibly brilliant horror ideas and very good scripts. And he's got like the filmmaking equivalent of a 10 ear. I watch most of his movies and think I really, really like this. What he did in the writing of it and conception of it and its best moments is good enough that I like these movies. But I think if you handed a lot of these scripts off to better directors, these movies would be absolute classics as opposed to movies that are like bits and pieces of something great and an idea good enough that I really like it. I think, you know, very rarely does he get all the way there and make a nightmare on Elm Street, right? Which I think is a very, very good cohesive whole movie. I think he could have had a lot more nightmare on Elm Streets in his screenwriting career if someone else was directing is my answer to that question not you know is that he's shockingly inconsistent yeah like hills have eyes where it's just like you've got to fix these costumes you've got to fix uh, some of the decisions you've made some of the directing decisions some of the performance decisions or people under the stairs which is just like there's just some faulty wiring in the in the construction of this thing and i still really admire both of those movies and really like both of those movies but i do go these these could have been fixed by a by a better director it's funny too because looking at your list uh these are all amazing scripts but uh, very few of them i think i think the exception is probably rosemary's baby and alien but but very few of them are as game changing as you know something like night of the living dead you know you have so many on here that are remakes or kind of new takes on old formulas. So yeah. I think that speaks a lot to r- good writing that you're able to take those old formulas and bring them into something that's new. Yeah, and that's, think about them more. That, that's that, uh, it's all the criteria you choose, you know, of like, okay, how, how are you going to decide these? Um, again, they're not the greatest movies. Uh, they are the greatest movies, but they weren't chosen because like, <laughs> like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, not a living yeah. Dawn of the Dead. Like these are all uh, yeah. right up there as far as like, I love the invitation, but like, it's such a personal favorite rather than one yeah. of the greatest films, you know? 
Uh, so it may, it's very, very different. Excellent. Well, Tom, thank you so much for doing this. This has been a really fun to talk about. Yeah, uh, I loved your... having you on. I hope we did not chew your ear off. This is a I... mega-sized episode. But <laughs> I could have <laughs> kept talking to you for hours more. It'll be good. I, I right. assure you. All right. And if you've enjoyed hearing uh, Tom talk to us, we're going to invite him to do a little mini episode with us where we uh, put him in the hot seat to do the game Five from the Fire. So okay. Patreon subscribers can hear that episode. All others, you're out of luck. <laughs> Thanks again for doing this, Tom. All right. Perfect. Thank you, gentlemen. I had fun. Thank you, sir. Thank you.